I'm Molly O'Connor. And I'm Sarah Connell Sanders. And you're listening to Pop It. This is the podcast for popping questions, popping bottles, and pop culture. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Molly. We're oh, very excited. Yes, welcome Heather Bish, and thank you to our, our live audience. This is awesome. Yeah, you, you guys, you guys. <laughs> this was made possible by the Worcester Arts Council, so we're very grateful to them as well. Absolutely. Um, the, I think, not the main thing, but really I think the first thing that Sarah and I kind of came to when we were talking about um, this discussion that we were going to have and just questions that we had, were, we were really focused on the idea of when we hear these stories, we hear about the circumstances, we hear about the suspects, we hear a little bit about, you know, the victim. Um, but we want to know who Molly was. What was she like as a person, as a teenager, as a sister? Who was she? Sure, that's my favorite thing to talk about. Um, my sister was born uh, at home, actually. Oh, wow. So she was the third child, and um, my mom just had this like sort of hippie idea of having a home birth. And um, so I actually had the uh, pleasure of watching Molly come into the world when I was six years old. Uh, so I took ownership of her very, very, um, very soon after. She was like my baby too. Um, and Molly was a wild baby. She cried a lot, and she ripped her clothes off and didn't want to wear diapers and hated shoes, and um, I love pretty dresses, and Molly was more of a tomboy. Um, she really loved to emulate my brother. Um, so my brother was a big athlete, and she wanted to play soccer like him and baseball and, and do all the things that John did. So. It was not surprising that she became a lifeguard, um, just like my brother was. Um, she loved babies. She loved children. Um, she, as my mom said in the video, was very silly. She loved pranking people and laughing, being with her friends. Um, she always had at least one or two friends over the house, and um, she she was fun and, you know. We were just, like I said in the video, getting to that adult relationship time. I had had my daughter the, the year uh, Molly turned 16, and so she, she was her godmother, and she you know, had to sort of have this adult role, even though she was still, still a child herself. And um, she actually loved it. She loved feeding Michaela. She would call her her little ship pumpkin, and... Um, you know, the, the day she disappeared, actually, we had had a stomach, a, a funny stomach bug um, a few days before, so I hadn't seen um, my family for a few days, and we only lived a mile apart, um, so, and, and I had this baby, so we were spending a lot of time together, and um, Molly stopped over that morning because she had missed Michaela um, after those couple days, so it's really special to us that we had that, that moment before um, she was taken. But Molly was, she was someone that cared about people. She, you know, she would be really sensitive about things that were happening in the world. So I wonder sometimes how she would exist in the, in the temperature of the climate that we're in right now because things affected her so deeply. And, and she wanted to help people and make them feel comfortable and happy. And, um, she showed this when she was in, I always tell the story about art class, and Molly um, had special needs students that would come into her art class, 
and you know they weren't in the mainstream as much. So she, when they came in, she would like give them high fives or send them notes that I'm so happy to see you today. And they just really felt a part of the of the class and the community. And and that's really you know what my sister exemplified was this sense of love and and fun and and making things better. And so you know when I think about Molly and I get sad, I try to do something to um, help somebody or to um, make somebody laugh. I like a prank too, to be honest. <laughs> um, so that was, that was Molly. One of the things that I thought was telling about her character as we were reading more and more about her story was this letter she wrote to the parents of a little girl who had been abducted when she was 10 named Holly. And it said, I am very sorry. I wish I could make it up to you. She's almost as tall as me. I wish I knew Holly. I hope they find her um, from Molly Bish. Do you remember the abduction of Holly? And how is it that your 10-year-old sister came to like find it in her heart to write this letter to Holly's parents? And that, that was Molly. That was how she was. Um, I do remember when Holly was abducted. I was 16. And Holly and Molly were actually the same age. Um, and, and, and Molly was really impacted by this. So we had gone to church. My mom would bring us to church every week, and, and the priest had asked us to pray for, for the family and for Holly. And, of course, Molly wrote this letter and really, really was concerned about it. As I said, she just had this, like, really sensitivity to things that were happening around her, and um, I think she just wanted to express her, her love and, and hope and... Um, in, in a childlike way. I don't think she could have possibly imagined what, what had happened to Holly. Um, she did include a photo from the 90s that oh. is the bane of my existence now because <laughs> it's all over the place. But <laughs> um, it is, it, it, it's a beautiful memory. And the, and the fact that the, Holly, the Peranian family kept this letter, yeah. and when Molly disappeared, you know, that many years later, were able to show us and present this to us and that, you know, that, that was a sort of a miracle in, of, of itself. I, you know, I think that's um, a beautiful connection between those, those two girls who were hurt by you know, these monsters in our society. And there were a lot of parallels in those two cases, but did your families cross paths often as the person of interest was brought to light? I think that when bad things happen and when people are raped in a certain area or abducted in a certain area, we want to think that it's like one bad guy. That, that did this to somebody. Um, and it probably, you know, we want to believe that it's probably the same guy that, that took Molly and Holly. Unfortunately, um, I've, I've had to spend quite a few years uh, studying crime and, and abductions and, and these, the dangers of, of women, and there's a lot of bad guys out there. And so when we looked at Holly's case and Molly's case, yes, they're two blonde-haired girls very different ages, so when you, when you do a behavior analysis on a perpetrator, you look at age, you look at um, and the geographic area, and all these different dynamics, and I've learned about this, I'm not an expert. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the parallels were that these two girls ran into monsters, and they were taken and hurt by them. Um, I think that's just the most unfortunate and sad thing because they both remain unsolved cases. And, you know, we, I'm here and I talk about Molly's case and, and Molly and, and the impact it had on our family. 
But you know, we have to recognize that the same thing happened to Holly's family, and it was just another bad guy. And when I talk about Molly, you know, I understand that I have a privilege that Molly is a beautiful blonde girl that received a lot of media attention. So every time that I talk about my sister, I like to talk about Patty Gagne too. And Patty was a Worcester girl um, in her senior year of high school, coming home from her boyfriend's house when she was strangled by her pocketbook and left to die. No one even looked for Patty for, I think it was almost 12 hours, and her brother found her strangled by her pocketbook. And he, it is still an unsolved crime here in Worcester. So, you know, Patty doesn't receive as much attention as Molly or, or Holly, but I think um, if we peel back the layers, and I think we're kind of starting to see this now with the Gabby Pepito case, yeah. where, you know, this beautiful girl disappeared in Wyoming, and then everybody after is saying, oh, but what about all these other women who have disappeared in Wyoming? And, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that, I think. Um, but I think it's most important to remember that that many girls disappeared, there's probably that many bad guys. And we just need to be really vigilant. Absolutely. Yeah, I had read this New York Times article a couple weeks ago that really struck me because uh, there's a research study at Cal State and it was showing that white missing women and girls had received so much more um, initial coverage, but also that they were depicted as good people, whereas women of color were placed at fault more and looked at as at risk or somehow complicit in their um, disappearances. And I was curious, I know you've just been appointed by Charlie Baker, by Governor Baker, to the Missing Persons Task Force. Are we tackling that issue in Massachusetts? Yes, we're very aware of this issue in Massachusetts. I think we understand that certain cases um, do get spot, you know, it just happens that the media picks up or the family has the ability to advocate and speak. And not all families have that ability, and, and understandably so. And, nor do they have the luxury of having an attorney or a media point person or all these different things that can sort of help bring attention to the case. So I, th I think there's um, complicated issues with, with that. I think, um, you know, um, in Massachusetts, we don't have any training for law enforcement. So we have that issue. We have a data system issue. We have, um, we, you know, it, we don't have like a, a time period where we report someone missing. So Molly was missing for three hours before they even told us. And it really depends on the investigator on how they put it into the system. So there, there is a lot of things that we need to look at as, as far as missing persons. Um, but I think also, um, when it comes to cases like Molly's and, and Patty's, um, I think it's important that we keep bringing attention like, for the people who have the microphone to talk about the Patty Ghanis of the world because if the family isn't and if the investigators aren't, then who else is going to? And one of the ways that I've noticed you all over TikTok, and the algorithm sometimes knows, I think it's listening to me, but you started to pop up more and more once we were in communication. And the video that just took my breath away was when you received your sister's belongings just this summer. So I'm curious, you know, why did it take so long for them to get her belongings back to you? And then also Molly and I looked at them and we were just like, wow, what a capsule of the year 2000 where there's like buff 
the oh. Bath and Body Works lotions and the, all these things that we had in our lockers in high school. Right. Oh yeah, the Bath and Body Works was so extra. <laughs> it, it was so funny because I, you know, I had this box for, and you know, you just keep going through it and looking at, it, touching everything, and and then I would go into the bathroom and into my daughter's bathroom, and it was loaded with just as many the things products. that my my sister had. So it, it must be a genetic thing. I don't know. But uh, yes, I, I, I'm not entirely sure why it took that long. Um, I know that they, as the detective in, from 2017 said that they started going back through the original persons of interest and, and the original um, detectives on the case. So I know they were trying to, over COVID particularly, look through what they had for evidence and sort of get rid of stuff that they didn't need. And if you saw the stuff in the box, um, there was perfume, there was prom invitations, um, cups, photographs, um, things that I'm, I'm not entirely sure why they took those particular things. I thought I was going to get a 1999 computer back. I, I had no idea what they took from the house. I could not remember. Um, so it, it, it was an, um, you know, interesting that it, it happened to be... Um, that they found this person of interest as well. But I do, I, I do think that was more coming from the TikTok. I had started TikToking in April, and in June, all of a sudden, they had this new piece of interest, a person of interest. So maybe not related, but I do think, again, with that social media, um, it makes such a big difference with carrying these stories. And I mean, watching that Gabby Pepito case unfold was really interesting for me because everybody was talking about it and they were getting more information out there. And as the information was coming out, the public was coming forward with more information. And I think that's what families are trying to do when they have missing persons investigations, especially when they go on as long as Molly's has. Um, I know that I'm always trying to invent new ways. I mean, I made that video one year. Um, I've put posters in every town in Massachusetts. I've held tip campaigns, I've put up billboards, I've put up yard signs. I mean, I've tried every possible avenue to, to try to remind people that this person is still out there and we don't have any, um, any, any justice for Molly. And you know, I think the TikTok has really been super helpful to me because I can just say whatever. I don't have to like get Kathy Curran from Channel 5 or, or Kim Ring from the Telegram and say, hey, will you help me do a story? I can just do my own story. And, um, and whoever cares, cares. And if not, it, it just, whatever. Well, it has, your feed has hundreds and thousands of views. You know, it's, it's amazing. So clearly, cool. you're doing the right thing. Well, I think, too, that I'm working on these initiatives, like the Mass mm -hmm. Missing Persons Task Force has been really important to me. Um, you know, again, with the data systems. And we, we started uh, the Missing Persons Day in Massachusetts right after Molly disappeared. So in 2001, um, my mom planned the whole ceremony and, and was in charge of it for many years. Um, it, it's still happening. Um, she's just taken a step back. But, you know, it, there was no time before that that any family in Massachusetts was able to come forward and, and ask legislators or or the district attorneys and say, hey, guess what, my kid's still missing. And there's so many families out there and there are so many cases that are unresolved uh, today that, that um, you know, could use that publicity and that sort of um, spotlight so that maybe something can come forward. I always say, you know, relationships change over time. And so it's really 
great to get that word out because somebody might not feel comfortable at one time, but maybe a few years later we'll, we'll come forward and give that piece that we'll put the puzzle together. For sure. You talked about um, how it took a long time not only to get that evidence back and then to, and then later on this new person of interest is mentioned. And there's been a few. Like we have Rodney Stanger, Gerald Battisoni, Francis P. Sumner. Like there's been several over the years where there's been no resolution. I think they're all well, deceased at this point, right? So my father had a stroke in 2007 and he, he had sort of, you know, dealt with the state police and the detectives and you know we always had these meetings as a family but he was sort of the the primary contact person and, and when he had the the stroke I, I took over and so that was different because I'm, I'm not my dad I'm not he my dad was sort of a part of the criminal justice system he was a probation officer and here I am a teacher coming in like what are you talking about you guys don't work together like when I have a problem with a student the autism specialist is there and the reading specialist and the gym teacher we all figure it out um, but, but law enforcement doesn't work that way. So um, what, what, you know, I think families become desperate because you don't know what they're doing, you don't hear from them, um, you know, so, so you're compelled to do what you can. And, and like I said, I, I made that movie and I um, held tip campaigns, so I ended up, you know, becoming involved with um, uh, private investigators and, and people who are experts in behavior analysis. Um, and sometimes those people take advantage of you. But the difference with some of the, the, those persons of interest is Rodney Stanger and Gerald Battistoni were people that, that I had brought forward with the help of um, whoever was helping me at the time. Uh, so they were like sort of pushed forward through me. I'm like, come on, you got to look at this guy. Come on over here, look at this guy. Um, Frank Sumner was not on my list. He, he never came across my, um, from me, from a tip. It, he came from a state police tip. Um, and, and so for me, you know, having been in, in, in the middle of this this whole time and like, you know, working so hard to find this monster and this, you know, yeah. haystack of monsters, unfortunately, um, I, um, you know, I was like, oh, this is different. This is definitely different. Um, so I'm really hopeful, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful with Frank Sumner that we have something. I know, um, you know, um, Detective Murphy in the video mentioned new technology and that's what I'm putting all my money in right now. That we're going to have a DNA analysis that's going to lead us to some answers and, um, you know, we'll have some resolution one way or another. I imagine, too, that every time a new name either comes up from your end or the other side, does it put, it must put you through some kind of like emotional ringer. Like, oh. am I going to do this again? Oh yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's, um, you know, when Frank, um, came forward this summer, it, you know, it's interesting because I, again, spent so much time, you know, trying to find a murderer, trying to live a normal life, figure out who I am and make sure I don't lose my mind. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I've been in therapy forever. And, you know, I think it's, it's really important. So I, I've, I've learned a lot about trauma. And so having this sort of PTSD episode happen with Frank, I could kind of see it and feel it in my body. And, um, you know, being in COVID and not being so busy or anything, I had like a little bit of a quieter time to sort of experience it and, and look at what was happening inside of me and in my mind. and. I had, my daughter is older now. I had a, a Michaela when it, I was 16, but now she's 22. Mm -hmm. And um, we had gone to P-Town, and it was um, Pride 
day or something. So we were, you know, there's a lot of people around and it was June and so it's getting, everything's opening up again and we're all excited. And we were in a store and I have this thing about people coming from behind me. I can't, you know, and it's not all the time. It's just when I have, I'm, I'm feeling my PTSD. And so I, you know, I try to talk to Michaela about this. And um, so we're in a store and I, someone comes too close and I'm like, and you, I could feel the wave through my body, the, phys the physical change. And, um, you know, I looked at her and I said, oh, I'm having one of those PTSD things. And she was like, you know, 22, and she's like, mom. And I'm like, no, really. And she was so good because, you know, again, we talked about this a lot. So she grabbed my hand and she, she's like, all right, we're just going upstairs. And we just went to a different part of the store and it was fine. Um, so it's interesting to, you know, have this hindsight and see the impact um, that, that it has. It's, you know, it, it definitely has impacted my life in ways that I, you know, never imagined I would be sitting here doing this. Or I'd be so brave to be fighting with the district attorneys every Friday or, you know, um, talking to experts about DNA analysis or prosecution of evidence, things that are way seem outside my, my field of expertise. But um, it, Molly definitely has made me braver, for sure. I am curious about the DNA analysis, and I'm hoping, I know we were saying earlier, sometimes we explain things like we would to our middle schoolers, but if you could give me a middle school explanation. Sure. I saw that you're pushing for familial DNA searching, and I'm curious about the pros and cons. Sure. So what, a few years ago, I had met with my detectives, I think it was about 2017 or 18, um, and they had said, you know, Heather, you know, I'm, I'm always like, what can I do? What can I do? This is taking too long. And it was like 17 years, 18 years, 20 years, come on. So they said, well, we could really use familial DNA searching in Massachusetts. And I'm like, okay, I'll do it, fine. And I had no idea what I was talking about or what I was committing to um, or what I would be dealing with. But um, I learned a lot over, over that time. And really what familial DNA searching is, it allows um, law enforcement to go into the CODIS system. So our CODIS system has all of our felons who, who've committed felonies in Mass or, you know, nationwide. And so you, if you have an unidentified DNA sample from a crime scene and it, it's, it doesn't hit on anything in CODIS and years go by and you use all these different methods to try to solve this crime, what you could do is propose to do this familial searching. And really the bill is just an, a guideline on how to do it to protect everybody's um, rights and ensure that protocols are followed so that you know it jives for everybody and, and everybody's protected. So it's not inventing the law. People have certainly used familial DNA searching um, in Massachusetts. And for, in fact, I think the former colonel um, solved her sister's case, or, they, or Massachusetts solved her sister's case by using familial searching. So it's not, the, the DNA law is written so generally um, that it's kind of like a gray area. Mm -hmm. The idea of the bill is for those naysayers who are like, oh, my rights, my rights, you know, my confidentiality, my this, my privacy. Um, so basically what, like I said, over that time, um, you know, you'd have this unidentified sample that you couldn't solve. You would propose to do this familial searching and it would look for, um, in the CODIS system, it would look for a may match or a partial match and that would tell us, oh, somebody in this family has committed this crime. And so they would just do, you know, they would just look at, okay, who's, you know, 
in Warren at this time, oh, this guy's uncle lived on Cummins Pond Road, and he you know, brought him the newspaper every Tuesday. So you know, they would do the, that normal investigation um, after getting, so it's, it's sort of just a lead. Um, but the, the process is really to, again, provide these safeguards for everybody. Um, I think people have been concerned about, obviously, their privacy. And again, these guidelines are for that privacy to say what happens and where it happens. I mean, obviously, if, you're, if your family member committed a murder, I'm sorry, but yeah. that's more important. Um, and um, you know, I know another, another um, concern was that, um, that, that, that the people in CODIS, that there's, an, um, there's an, more people that are identified as people of color. And so that's an issue, but that's a bigger issue. It really isn't a familial searching issue. I think that's a, a larger criminal justice issue that we have nationwide. Like not who's in the system. Right, well, we, you know, we know that there are more you know, black people in yeah. prisons and, and, and being arrested more. So I think that's a, that's a racial issue that we need to sort of deal with. But this, this is just a little, a little protocol. So, I've been working on this for about two years. Um, it is now in um, committee, so I'm hoping we'll have a hearing soon. So if anyone out there has a legislator that they're comfortable emailing or calling, it'd be super appreciative of, of you doing that. Um, Senator Gobi and um, Representative Smola are the, the key um, legislators that are sponsoring the bill, but we have about a dozen others that have signed on. So it's moving, and I think it's important to you want to give this explanation to talk about how different it is from genetic genealogy. So genetic genealogy is something where you put, you know, you, there's a warehouse, uh, like from 23andMe, and you would take that unidentified DNA sample and you'd put it in that warehouse and it would match with whoever. Um, maybe had, had, you know, like somebody's uh, uncle or aunt or who did a DNA thing. This is not that. That's, that's a whole other ball game. This is just taking what we have as a law and a finer um, DNA tool and analysis to implement uh, a way for investigators to get these bad guys. Like I said, um, there's a lot of them out there. And unfortunately, I think, you know, I, I've been giving this sixth grade explanation where, you know, we, when we think of bad guys or monsters or, you know, the person who killed Molly or Holly, we're thinking of these extreme per persons. But Rodney Stanger existed right in Southbridge, right, right nearby for many, many years. And his family was supporting him. He was married. He has children. Um, and they are all supporting him and enabling him to continue to grow. And so a monster doesn't become a murderer overnight. They get that way. They grow. Their abuse continues to grow. Their maladaptive behaviors continue to happen until something really, really egregious happens and they're caught. So I think it's really important to recognize those medium-sized monsters and start saying, oh, I don't think this boyfriend is treating me right. Or maybe my brother isn't treating his, his wife right and say something because they're just going to keep growing. And that kind of comes back to, you mentioned that Gabby Petito case where it was like her boyfriend, they had been traveling across the country together, right? And what was the, where was the red flag there? Where, because we, I mean, this is uh, allegedly, we don't know what happened. This is yeah. speculation. But it's that same idea where they had gotten into a fight. Who knows what happened? And so 
could someone have stepped in? But that's the thing that we look at it that way is we're like, what did so-and-so do wrong? When really it's like, why aren't we focusing on the dangerous people well, and those maladaptive the, behaviors? The Andrea Yates case. Andrea sure. Yates killed five of her children. After the fourth child, she was having postpartum psychosis, right? Her husband says, well, I still want to have kids. So they have a fifth kid. She has postpartum psychosis again, goes into the hospital. He checks her out because he needs her to take care of the kids, pushes her buttons. I mean, it's like he pushed her to the cliff and she jumped off. You know, and he, he literally, his, like, I forget if it was her mother or his mother going there to check on her when she was out of the hospital, but like, he was like, oh, she's too reliant on that person. So he left early and he left that window for his kids to be murdered and he was never charged as an accessory or anything. So, you know, we kind of need to define what this is, this emotional abuse um, that leads to greater, you know, greater, um, you know, endings of, of violence. It goes back to that idea of, like you mentioned, with the familial DNA, it's a bigger system problem, right? Where people do report domestic um, violence, or they do report that type of stuff, um, emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, and then they're not helped in the way that they need it, maybe, right? Well, I don't think um, emotional abuse is something that people really recognize. Sure. I think if you're, not, if you're not coming in with a black eye or, you know, a cut, um, it's very hard to prove emotional abuse. And so I think, it, again, it grows and it continues until something happens, either the, the woman or the man, whoever's in the victim position, recognizes what's happening, or someone in their family or their friend group says, hey, this is not okay, and, and they step in. Um, like, how many perpetrators of mass shootings have we seen where after it happens, we find out that the person who committed it had, been, had a history of abusive relationships, right, or domestic assaults in particular? There are, there are plenty of signs um, before someone kills somebody. And I think that we've normalized a lot of that behavior. And we're always like, oh, that's just the way he is. Or, you know, he's, you know, we've enabled people. We've, we're, we're, we're allowing this to perpetuate in our society. And um, I, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm scared for, for it. I'm scared for my daughter. Um, and I'm, I'm sad because I, I Sad for the people that have to experience this and don't know, you know, what what's happening and where where the end is. I mean, thinking of Gabby's family and they're desperately searching for her, and his and Brian Laundrie's family will not say anything. They're just hiding this guy. And I can't tell you how many families I know that create these enabling systems for these people to continue to, you know be abusive or be addictive or be whatever to continue their behaviors that grow into something dangerous. Um, so I think, you know, again, you have the enablers, you know, the husbands, the Andrea Yates husbands, who, who sort of push these people and, and um, support them. And it's, uh, you know, I think if we start talking about this more and, you know, um, you know, I'm glad in a way with Gabby's case that people are starting to recognize this. And again, TikTok, you know, you got to give credit to these social media platforms that allow people or therapists to come on and say, hey, wait a minute. 
did you notice this? I, you know, I, I think with law enforcement, they, don't, they aren't trained, you know. They're, they're coming out of school with criminal justice degrees, not degrees in psychology. So how do they know what emotional abuse looks like? Unless, and what is their training like? Is it like a six hour in service where they're texting their friend the whole time? I mean, I, I wanna, I, those are things I wanna know and I want, I hope will be rectified. Um, yeah, there's a lot of work to do. <laughs> I just have a lot of faith in Gen Z right now. We keep talking about TikTok, but our students online, the presence, I feel like Generation Z wants to talk about mental health and destigmatize mental health, and that's so important. I know, I agree. I'm, I'm super um, supportive of the next generation. I think I talk to my daughter about mental health all the time, and I'm like, oh, look at this in our family. Oh, we got to watch this in our family. Oh, you know, this PTSD thing might impact you. Right. Like, you know, when you have kids, so like, think about it and, you know, let's talk about it and deal with it. I, you know, I think dealing with a, a lot of our stuff would probably help people heal <laughs> better. Um, you mentioned too that when this does happen to families, right? Is there anything like outside of just like holding a candle or being part of a search party that like communities can do to really help to carry? families and, and like close friends of the victims through this? Oh yeah, I think, um, you know, there's so much that my community and my friends have, have done. I mean, like I said, we, we you know, I, I make them help me deliver posters to every town and um, make movies or come to podcast nights or whatever. But, you know, I think what anyone could do, even if they're, they're not my close friend or family, if, if you know about someone like maybe um, Patty Gagne, you know, you talk about her. Um, maybe she lived in your neighborhood and she's been missing or killed for so long. You know, um, I think sharing that information is so important. It doesn't matter if you know that person. Sharing that, I, I've seen so many TikToks on um, cases now, like these true crime things. So, and, and it's so cool because I'm learning myself about some of these cases that I, I didn't know that much about. Um, and, I, and I think I know a lot about cases in Massachusetts, but um, it's sharing that story and getting people, maybe getting that information. And that's, again, I think we got lucky because that information came in. I mean, Frank Sumner was on the list of bad guys, I think because he was in the area and he was a sex offender, but there was no like, you know, white car or, or ties to Molly or Cummins Pond. But then someone came in and said, wait a minute, he had a white car in his garage that, that day. He, was, he had access to a white car. And so I think um, you know, it's sharing those stories. So I think any average person could look at, you know, look at that and, and, and help a family that way. I mean, um, I know um, so many people who've, when I, I, when I was doing the yard signs for Molly's 21st um, anniversary this year, my idea was to put 21 signs up between Warren and Spencer to kind of draw attention to Frank Sumner and, and where he was and, and such. And it ended up that people were like, wait a minute, I want to sign, I want to sign. And I was like, oh, yay, okay, I could spread this out. And, um, and it worked out. So, you know, people were able to carry that message and they were able to put that state police number out there. So, you know, someone's driving by that every day and it's weighing on their conscience. Maybe that one day they see that sign and they're like, you know what, I'm just gonna make that call now. You just never know. Um, there's a lot of media about true crime, not just 
or about crime in general, about missing persons, right? There's movies, TV shows, um, some true, some fictional. Do you find yourself kind of trying to avoid that or do you check in with it? Yeah, I was never a scary person. Like I never liked scary movies. I don't like guns. I don't like blood. So true crime is very hard for me. (laughs) It really is, but I am so um, committed to um, sort of what I've learned, you know, it's like I said, it's it's a bigger issue. There's bigger issues now that you know I want to know about. I want to know if police are trained. I want to know about that case in Minnesota because I want to know if they, those officers are trained better than my Massachusetts ones are. And how can I get that them to listen to each other or talk to each other or share their knowledge or skills? Um, you know, I want to. I've learned so much from. The, the families that I, I've met um, for a long time, my brother and I struggled because my parents started the foundation and, and they were you know trying to solve this crime and, and deal with this. And so John and I are in our early 20s and we're like, oh my God, what do we do? And who are we? And you know we'd go to the store and someone would be like, oh, you're Molly Bish's sister. And they would cry to us and we were like, and so we'd have to comfort them. Like and, and it was so bizarre. So. Um, in 2006, John and I finally got to meet some siblings from across the country, and it was like, I always think this must be like what it was like, you know, to go through like an AA healing experience, because you're with people who have the same thing, like, oh, wasn't that awful when my mom gave me presents from my sister around the second Christmas after she was gone, like, you know, and how do you say that to your parents, like, you know, so like having those conversations and being being able to laugh about it and and sort of vent about it um, was was truly healing. But also, as as I've grown into this um, position, I guess I'm in with with Molly's case, it's it's also been incredibly valuable because when I'm running out of ideas, I'm like, so what did you do last year? What did you do for the 20th? What did you do for the 16th? Like, we're all in this club nobody wants to belong to, but we're here to support each other and kind of like figure out how how we can, you know, figure this out, I guess. We so appreciate the emotional labor that you've done here tonight. Absolutely. And I mean, I hope the one thing we all walk away with is that we look out for each other, um, yes. especially women looking out for one another and keeping an eye on those friendships and relationships to make sure we're all safe. Absolutely. I'd love to hear about the status of the Molly Bish Foundation, um, what some of your current goals might be as it's rejuvenated, and then open it up for a few questions. So, again, um, you know, my parents are sort of in the retirement mode, so um, they, you know, we operated the foundation as sort of an advocacy and educational um, um, thing to, to bring child identification kits to parents because we learned very early that one in six children is recovered from a, just a regular photo. Um, when Molly went missing, my parents didn't even know where the camera was, never mind a picture. So they were like committed to this one thing. If they could tell parents, carry this picture, have one picture. If you're you know, in Walmart and your, your kid sneaks away for a minute, you'll, you'll have this picture and bam. Um, so, so that was the, the start. And, and again, after my dad had the stroke, I kind of took over um, some of this. So um, we, we've maintained our, our education and we've participated in many trainings for law enforcement. Um, 
you know, we've, we've done some legislative work. Uh, so currently, you know, it, we're mostly focusing on this familial DNA bill, but I've actually just uh, repartnered with Anna Maria College and their Molly Bish Center. So um, the Molly Bish Center at Anna Maria was born in like 2006 with my dad. Um, and then I sort of took over working uh, as a consultant with them. And we would do like, a lot of, we wanted to do a lot of cross-curricular trainings for social workers and teachers and law enforcement. Um, and then it, you know, with um, you know, change in leadership and things, uh, it kind of faded. But now we've re redeveloped our partnership, so we're really excited um, to start getting going on, um, you know, some activities at Anna Maria. We're hoping to re rejuvenate the Missing Children's Day. Um, you know, we really uh, try to address Victims Week in April for for victims around um, the Worcester County area. Um, so that's where our primary focus is right now. Uh, I've developed a website. It's uh, mollybish.org, or the mollybishfoundation.com, I'm sorry. Um, and we, we're just kind of sharing any information. We have the tip line. We have videos. Um, so that's primarily what we're doing. I'm and of course, thinking. the task force. <laughs> oh, right. I'm sure that takes a lot of your yes. time, too. Thank you for that service um, on top of all your teaching and everything else that you're doing. I'm just thinking how much has changed in a decade. You know, it was important to carry around a photo of your child in your wallet, and now everyone right. has these cell phones with thousands right. of pictures on them. Yeah. Um, so, what's the next thing? And how fast will technology move when it does come to familial DNA? Right, right. So, um, I, I'm not sure where the next thing is. I think um, I would really like to focus again. Um, I continue to focus on law enforcement training. I think it's important. Um, we don't have a mandated training um, on missing persons cases in Massachusetts for our law enforcement. So I continue to feel that very strongly about uh, really developing that and some systems in place for missing persons. Um, a lot of my concern is around families and their vulnerability. Um, when these cases happen, I, I think I had mentioned, um, you know, I'd worked with a, a few different um, private investigators and experts, and we were taken advantage of in, by a lot of people, and I think that's a common thing that's happened in, in a lot of these unresolved cases. So I think it would be great if we had a missing persons coordinator in Massachusetts that could be like sort of a, um, a point person with the data systems and how law enforcement is trained and also on the victim's advocacy side where we're supporting families so they're not feeling, you know, victim and, and perpetrator are just two sides of the coin. Every perpetrator was a victim. So, you know, we want to ensure that our victims aren't re-victimized and victimized and victimized to the point where, you know, they have, you know, malice towards the, the police and the detectives. That, you know, it's a, such a, a tension-filled relationship. It's so difficult because, you know, from my perspective, again, being a teacher, it's hard for me to understand how they operate. But I, at the same time, I, I respect that they have this huge responsibility and that they want to solve this as much as we do. And yet they can't tell me. So it's like, it's almost like that dragonfly story where the dragonfly is bouncing off the water and they can't give you the message that the world is wonderful if you get out from under the ocean <laughs> or the water. Um, it's, it's very hard. So I think, um, you know, those are some of the things I, I feel very strongly about. Mm -hmm. um, of course, I think we all need to continue talking about mental health and how that impacts victims and perpetrators. 
I think we have time for two or three questions if anyone has a question for Heather. Don't be shy. I'm pretty open. <laughs> No, so we did our pictures at community events. Yeah, so we didn't do any over COVID. And honestly, before COVID, a lot of companies like Kodak were taking over and having their own safety kits. So when we first started in 2000, we were like the only game in town. But then a lot of companies, I think, um, there's a sheriff's office or department. They have a like an eye scan thing that is also part of like a whole kit. Uh, so there's various um, organizations and companies that offer these things now. And again, like you said, the digital is is um, sort of replacing the need to go get printers and take that standard picture. So in the you know in the old days, 20 years ago, we'd go to like. Um, I don't know, like a Native American powwow or a church picnic or a community night out, and we'd have our stand set up with our taking pictures and printing them and gluing them into the book. And I mean, it's so old-fashioned now. So, so um, I, you know, we've we've sort of taken our premise of like talking about the key points of safety and talking about those the importance of having those pictures, um, but not really doing them for families anymore. As teachers, we know about the importance of wait time. <laughs> Twenty percent more children raise their hands when you go one one thousand, two one thousand, three one thousand. Take a thinking minute, as we say. Well, I say sometimes. Take a thinking yes. minute. Do you say if you find ignorance? Yep. Oh yes. Incredibly, so I spend so much time thinking about murderers, reading about murderers, reading about you know how someone can become a victim, trying to think of ways to find a murderer, trying to think of ways to inspire the police detectives to communicate with me or collaborate with me, trying to you know, driving out to podcasts, driving out to put posters up, you know. I spend so much time hunting this guy that my life is going to be remarkably different. You know, it, you know, when we first heard about Frank Sumner this summer, you know, I, initially you're shocked, right? And you're kind of just like going through, okay, this is, you know, what's happening. I happen to have like felt like a thousand, but it was probably only like five media people come over that day and I did a lot of interviews, but like that next night, I just laid in my bed and I was like, oh my God, what will I do with my life? Who am I without, my, without this murder? And what could I do? Like I could, I don't know, teach a yoga class. I, I, I have no idea. Like I never had my 20s or, you know, that time to like, where you figured out who you were and then you kind of lived your life. I just became a, a murderer finder <laughs> at 23 years old. So um, I am looking forward to, um, I did, I, I had been in administration for a while in education. Um, so I did just go back to the classroom teaching and you know, it was part of the, that news of hearing about Frank Sumner this summer and, and having you know, been through COVID you know, I think we all sort of reflected on our lives and what we were doing. Um, but when I heard about Frank and I thought, 
wow, this could be over. Like, what do you want to do? What do you want to be, Heather? And I'm like, oh, I can just be a teacher? Like, that could just be my life? That would be so great. So, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, it, it's a complicated thing. You know, I would love to be able to see Frank Sumner in court and have my day with him. But it's more important to me that my parents never have to deal with that. Like, I never want to have to see my mom have to face him again. So he's dead, and if he's the guy, you know, it's enough for me to let this go. But I won't stop advocating for women or for missing persons. Well, I have not seen anything about that, but I do know about this arrestee um, DNA thing that's sort of popping up. And in some states, we take DNA when someone's arrested instead of when they're convicted. And that kind of leads sometimes to people having committed more egregious crimes and, and, and finding these rapists and murderers and not having to go through the whole system, because you know the system is broken. I think we can all like sort of understand as as much as there's a great investigators and great DAs and great um, you know people working in the criminal justice field. It is a broken system, and it needs a lot of work. So, um, but you know I can give you my card after if you want. <laughs> we can think of something. I I feel very strongly that I, I think. You know, when you peel back layers and you, or you open that box and you realize this stuff is in there, you can't close it, you know? You, you know, I'll never be the same person again. And, you know, if I don't have to search for a murderer, that's going to be wonderful. But I'm not going to stop talking about this and, and talking about how women should be treated. And, you, and, you know, when we, like, when we do, um, you know, we all have to do those sexual harassment surveys, right? There's nothing on there about bully, like bullying in the workplace or emotional abuse, generally. My daughter just did one, and she's like, Mom, you're going to be so happy. They were like talking about stuff that's like more you know, covert than, than the outrageous, like, hey, nice, you know what? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like... Like microaggressions. Um, microaggressions, yes. Yeah. So, you know, again, there's a lot of work to be done. I love to have as much help as possible. So, um, if you're willing, please. Yes. I wanted to know, um, having been pretty familiar with Frank Sumner, he was in and out of the courthouse with your dad for, and I'm curious if your dad calls him at all, or if there's any indication that they have met. Not yet. So my dad does not, again, my dad had a stroke in 2007, so his 
short-term memory is very impacted, but his long-term memory is pretty in intact. So we would think that he would know if he remembered him. Um, but as far as we know, he has not had any, um, you know, we haven't been able to connect him to my father at all. Um, I do know that Frank sued the courthouse on several occasions and sort of sued everybody globally. So my dad was probably a part of that. Um, I, I, that's all we can sort of tie together right now. I know that detectives were look, looking into deeper files. Uh, my dad had a partner named Betty. And um, you know, so they, back in the day, they'd go on the road together, and they'd check on their clients. And um, so was he one of Betty's clients? You know, These are the things the state police don't tell you. And it, it is frustrating. It is really frustrating for families because I have to just hope and pray that they're looking at all these things. You know, I was kind of laughing this morning when I saw Dog the Bounty Hunter out there oh and putting up that airplane and that sign for, for Brian Laundrie. And I thought, That's, if, <laughs> this, is, this is how families get so desperate. You're just trying to find yeah. um, an answer. Uh, but it's kind of cool, too, because he's like, you know, when I go to the media and I'm telling my story and I'm talking about Molly or I'm doing these posters, it's to flesh out this guy. That's what he's doing, too. Um, so I think, um, you know, I got off track with that question. I'm sorry. But, <laughs> but I, I think, uh, again, you know, when we, when we all work together and share the information, um, it's super helpful. Like, I don't get that information from the police. So, you know, oftentimes I'll get people calling me and saying, oh, did you know, you know, your dad was a part of this lawsuit or this was this or that. And so I learn usually from the reporters or, or people who just, you know, are brave enough to call me and say, hey, I called the state police, but I wanted you to know too. Because they won't tell me every tip that they get. They don't, they keep me at a very low, low uh, level of, under, of knowing what's happening. Because they know you're so tenacious. So you're going to go after them. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> let's, let's go with that. Yeah, exactly. They're like, we can't tell her because we don't know what she's going to find. Unfortunately, I think that's a theme across the country <laughs> with be. cases. Um, yeah. You know, I, I've got a few friends who do true crime podcasts that are victims um, or from victim families. And, um, you know, we talk about how, you know, sort of being in a relationship with the state police. I, I feel like I'm in a relationship with the state police and it's kind of abusive. Like they stonewall me, they gaslight me, they lie to me, they tell me they're not gonna talk to me about certain things anymore. And then we get back together the next week and we're like, okay, you know, like nothing. Um, so that will be super great to get out of my life um, if Frank Sumner is, is the person. Um, but, but I think these are universal themes with law enforcement. And I know there's reasons behind um, the way that they behave, and it's to protect the case. And I, I fully understand that. I just think that we could do things differently. Um. Julie, do you want to take us home? You know, I was just going to comment on how impactful I thought it was when you said we talk a lot about missing people or unsolved crimes or, you know, these things, but for every missing person or unsolved crime, there's likely a, a missing perpetrator, right? Or like a, a, someone out there who probably hasn't been, um, hasn't been, I guess, 
brought to justice, you know. Right, identified, right. Correct, and I just thought that was so impactful to think about advocacy and sort of just, you know, protecting each other and really just being vigilant, and um, that just really struck me, so. Thank you, and you know, I think, um, you know, if we talked about Holly Peranian's case, and if if someone was doing TikToks about Holly Peranian, you know, you'd be putting this information. You maybe have that picture that her brother Zach drew. I mean, he was just a kid, and he went to a, a hypnotist to get this picture drawn. I mean, they've done so much to try to find their person too, and I don't think it's the same person. I really don't. Um, so you know, again, if 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 there was a true crime you know, person, if I, I, I don't think it's me. I, I'm, I'm too scared of some of these stories. I get it my own nightmare. But, you know, if, if, if we kept sharing these, you know, I think people, pieces would come forward and, you know, they can't hide. You know, they're, they're out there. You know, they're not all hiding in the woods like Brian Laundrie probably. They're, they're sitting at Dunkin' Donuts. They're delivering your mail. They're playing in your favorite band. seems like a good place to... Yeah, thank you it. so much. Yeah, this has welcome. been tremendous, and um, again, we're so honored to have had you thank here. You. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I also want to thank the Worcester Arts Council. This is a WAC-funded project and part of the Greater Massachusetts Cultural Council. That's right. Yeah. And mention that there are pop-it shirts on sale at Crompton Collective now, courtesy of 100 Acre Apparel right when you walk in the door um and one dollar from every sale will go to the be like brit foundation so thank you wow. thank you guys for coming yes um, enjoy your evening i've been mom i've been sarah this is awesome oh. we forgot we were on a podcast for a minute <laughs>